Okay, so we're at lesson number nine now. Lesson number nine is we deal with our study on conscience. It's a book by Nacelli and Crawley that we've looked at. We should finish up chapter two today and then really do, as they say, some open field running in our progress forward and get on through that. But obviously, if we're going to stop and look at uh, 30 scriptures uh, from the New Testament where the word conscience is used, uh, we have to stop and look at the background behind any one scripture. So you may look at the, uh, uh, the teaching that's come forward. You may, you may see it as a bit of a hodgepodge. Granted, that's, that's understood. Uh, but even today, if we don't go back with Peter's scriptures and look at exactly the background behind, behind what he's talking about, then we don't really get the full impact. So we'll, we'll do that to a degree. And it always takes us maybe down this road a little while and this one with some other issues, but that's fine. And hopefully when it's all over, we have a pretty firm foundation about the use of the word conscience and how it applies to us. Particularly last week, we uh, looked at conscience as it relates to our worship and to our walk. I hope you could glean that out of the scriptures that we looked at from Hebrews. We focused upon uh, the completeness and the sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice as comes out in Hebrews as they compare the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, it all goes back. Any issue of conscience is going to initially go back to what Christ has accomplished for us. So enough said about that. We'll reintroduce that later. Uh, we saw how the, the blood of Christ or the sacrifice of Christ has cleansed our Conscience, as it says, we looked at Hebrews 19:14, and then in 10:22 that believers have their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That same word used there, uh, the Greek word was uh, syndesis. It's the same word. So, um, the writer of Hebrews, uh, certainly Paul, as we look from the multitude of scriptures from 1 Corinthians and the one from 2 Corinthians, and now Peter. Uh, use this same word, the conscience, and uh, its importance, and what its role is in determining you know, God's movement in our life, the will of God, and so forth. So that's, that's been interesting to look at. Now, the first scripture that we look at today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, uh, is interesting because he says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful, uses the word mindful there in the ESV. Okay, remember he's using the ESV through. But the actual word in the original language is conscience. It's that same word. When mindful uh, of God, one endures sorrow while suffering. And of course, that may not make uh, a whole lot of sense to you unless you look uh, in 1 Peter 2.18 where he says, um, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only uh, to the good and gentle, but also the un- unjust. Uh, did I read the wrong scripture? I did write, okay. I've been bouncing around between these translations. It's, they run together after a while. But this is the second time in the New Testament that this Greek word is used. But here, he's not talking about 
conscience as, you know, this, uh, the, any moral determination, you know. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying, he's using the word as being aware, to being conscious, you know, not being <laughs> comatose, being conscious, okay. Uh, and this is one of those scriptures. So we won't, we won't dwell on that. Uh, because there's no need to do that. It doesn't really, it doesn't really fit in the scheme with the other 28 times that he uses it differently when he's talking about the foundation that we have in our life, the moral foundation that serves to help us evaluate certain situations. He's not talking about that. He's just talking about being aware, being conscious. So we can just leave that and not spend a whole lot of time on that and go to 1 Peter 3.16. 1 Peter 3. 16, where he talks about, and I'll go ahead and read this verse, but here we'll have to go back and read the preceding verses to get the full context. But he says, having a good conscience so that even when you are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So here the word conscience is being used in the sense you know, of these moral considerations, you know, that come from our foundation in the Word, what we know to be right and wrong. That's what he's talking about. But I'll be honest with you, as I looked at this and began focusing upon this particular verse, I mean, it just became absolutely imperative to go back and look beginning at verse 8. And I don't know what uh, translation you're looking at, uh, but the title there over these scriptures in, in the uh, ESV is Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. Okay, uh, I think a topic that might be dear to us all because there are those times uh, and there are those situations in our life where we've done everything that we know to do. It may be involving uh, relationships or some difficulty uh, in our families or at work or whatever. We've just done every thing we know to do and it doesn't seem like anything is changing Uh, when we prostrate ourselves and I mean that quite literally we prostrate ourselves before God and we seek his heart about a certain issue we examine our own heart and say Lord you know we know that we're not holding anything back there's there's no there's no pride there's no uh, issue of selfishness or laziness or any, any of that kind of thing. We truly want to know the will of God in a situation. And it seems like, you know, nothing is changing. Well, I would submit to you that something has changed. Or maybe I should say that something has been, once again, reaffirmed. And this is absolutely critical. And that is that you know by virtue of examining your heart before the Word, always before the Word of God, examining your heart, you know beyond any shadow of doubt, just as Paul has shared many times, that you stand before your accusers or before a situation, but most importantly, before God with a pure conscience, or as he says, with a good conscience. And that's, that's critical. That strengthens us. Then we begin to ask the question, perhaps, well, uh, you know, uh, how, how do I know that? How do I know that that's true? Um, and, and how can I experience the, the calm, if you will, the, the surety in my own heart and mind regarding a situation? How can I know that I'm in the center of God's will on this matter, that I'm in the zone, if you will, whatever? It's because that process 
of evaluation, evaluating our own conscience, why we do what we do, the foundation of it, has been proven by nothing other than the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be crystal clear, to be pure. That's all you can do, right? And there is, there is no higher ground, okay? Now, I say that understanding that as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, look, ultimately, and we go back to this for a moment, ultimately, God is my judge. All I can do in my flesh and with all that I have, the knowledge that I have of Scripture and what God has done in my life, how He's proven Himself, what I know about this situation, what I know about my own thoughts, my own intentions, the own matters within my heart, are in line with the Word of God. That's all you can do. And I just find it interesting that even Paul would say, but one day the, the total, the last peel will, will come off the final unveiling in any little small increment, if you will, of pride or selfishness or self-centeredness in my own life. Any of those things that were actually present and unknowns to me have shaded my understanding of God's perfect will. This, that day is going to come. That day is going to come. I often think about the Scripture, you know, we read most of them in the Revelation that talk about, you know, the Lord will wipe away all tears. Sometimes we interpret that as that the Lord will not allow tears in heaven. I don't know that I believe that. I think if He's going to wipe away all tears, there's got to be some tears for Him to wipe away. And for some of that might be these, these times when we realize you know, being in His holy prayer, when we realize opportunities missed, you know, the times that, maybe for lack of a better phrase, we, we deceived our own selves, we, we kidded our own selves about our true intent. It was shaded a bit. And we weren't able to accomplish the pure will of, of God in our life. God's going to reveal that. Interesting, anyway. So, we'll just see, uh, we'll just see what happens on that day. But let's look right now at verse 8. And let me, let me read to you. Now listen, as I, as I read this, I'm going to try to read this slow. I don't know if you've read this lately. But I think it speaks loudly to us. In fact, as I said, when I started on this and I looked at this, the preceding verses up to our focal passage here in, in verse 16, they seem to be more, uh, my, more needful for us uh, than pounding on that actual verse there, verse 16. So let's look. Let's read 8 through 15. Now listen. And Peter is talking to these folks, just a, a loving, loving shepherd speaking the truth. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble heart, or humble mind, as he says here. Now, I could literally take all of those. We could talk about unity. We could talk about sympathy. We could talk about brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. And we could do a lesson on each one of those. And Peter here has pulled these together to remind these folks exactly what the requirement is in dealing with others. That's what he's done. And listen in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, he says, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Wow, he's all over the heart 
here, isn't he? He's, he's, he's digging right down to those natural inclinations that we often have. Let's just call them what they are. They're natural. They're sinful. And he says, don't repay evil for evil. Once those thoughts come in your mind, once you start thinking in terms of somebody getting what or experiencing what you think ought to happen to them because of their actions or because of their words or this, that, or the other, you're in the wrong ballpark right there. And he says, don't do that. Do not do that. And I think it is. It's a natural inclination for us. Why? Because we're hurt. Okay? Or we're grossly inconvenienced. Or we're incensed. Or whatever. And his admonition, his direction is do not do that. And more specifically, the Holy Spirit is saying, identify that tendency and eliminate it first by calling it what it is. Don't do that. In fact, he says, but on the contrary, it's not that you just stay away from that. No, you got to get in action here. You got to take control of what's going on in your mind, what your natural tendencies might want to be. You got to take control of that. And he says, what? Bless. Bless. It's, and it's talking about action. It's talking about doing something. Not just adopting a state of mind. Well, I'm, I forgive you. God, God be with you. Okay, that's great. That's a start. But he's talking about doing something in your words. Doing something in your actions that demonstrate grace. You know, I mentioned that last week. And I've mentioned it before about the power of grace. Demonstrating grace to someone. Or get their attention. So bless, he says, for to this you were called. And this is your duty. This is what's expected. And we could say this is what the, the true body of Christ, the Christian community, if you will, is capable of. And nobody else is, not in a genuine sense. This is what the church does. This is the demonstration of love that should be looked upon from people on the outside and they say, well, these people are different. They, they love even when they've been wrong. They're obviously, they obviously care more about others than they care about themselves. This is different. Wow, you don't, you don't have to look hard and long for a contrast in today's society, do you? It's said that we live in the me generation, all right? And have been for some time. I think maybe that was even the last generation. I don't know what it is now. So very, very interesting. And this reflects a heart that's been changed. This is a heart that has not moved away from the reality of grace in its own life. Hasn't forgotten. As we shared a few lessons ago from, about the Ephesian church. Somebody who thinks like this has not forgotten their first love. They've not forgotten what they've been forgiven from. They've not forgotten the tremendous change that occurred in their life at the time of their salvation and how their sanctification has continued and they've seen the blessed hand of God in their life changing their life against life's circumstances and everything that life brings. So we're not just to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, we need to think different about this. Yeah, I understand what God has called me to. And yes, I understand that as a Christian, as a person, a possessor of the Holy Spirit of God, and with some knowledge of God's Word, I have been changed. I can continue to change. And he's saying, on the contrary, 
do something. Bless. Let it be obvious. Demonstrate. This is why Paul could say, again, and we've seen this a couple of times, particularly from Corinthians as we looked, he draws attention to his life. He draws attention to his life and says, look, not just at what we proclaim, but how we've lived it out. And that's the telltale sign of a changed life. And in this case, of one's true intent and their desire for unity and to minister to people. Blessed, because to this end you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You want to be pleasing to God? Then speak Christ and live Christ to people. Simple as that. A big bill to fill? Yes. But we're wholly equipped to do that. We're fully equipped to the extent that we understand the mandate of God's Word. This is what is required. This is what you were called to. And if for some reason this morning you don't feel like you can do that, then I would encourage you to prostrate yourself before God and say, God, put your word and your spirit on any of those things that are in my mind, in my thoughts, in my attitudes that keep me from doing this. Help me to do this. I can only do this with your guidance and direction. I can only do it based upon the power of Your Word, the uplifting of Your Spirit in my life. And this is the way it should be, because when this happens, He gets all the credit. God gets all the credit for the changed life and the power of the Scripture in changing our life. He goes on, he says, and he's quoting from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and to see Good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Deceit being the primary tool of the devil himself. You know, make something look like something that it's not, okay? And if he really wants to make it good, then flower it up with all kinds of religious talk and expectations or whatever. Really make it deceptive. You know, it says he disguises himself as an angel of light. This is his primary, I would say to you, his, his primary tactic. Let's just call it something else. Let him keep his tongue from evil and let his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. All that we do should be dominated by our desire for peace. Pursue it. Again, action. Do something. Don't just accept it, you know, intellectually as the right thing. Do something. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, if you're righteous in here, would you just kindly raise your hand? I want to count the righteous people in here. (laughs) we find our righteousness in Christ in Christ alone and when we read that word what are you talking about you're talking to the righteous okay yeah I'm talking to these people who are like Paul they they stand before God having already examined themselves and as best they can with all that's been provided to them they're clean before God their conscience is pure okay their conscience is good And that leads us not to focus upon our own selves, our own abilities. That drives us to our knees, does it not? It should. 
And if it doesn't, there's, there's something lingering there. We have nothing to bring. Our hope is in what Christ has accomplished for us. Our ability to see clearly in these situations that involve relationships and so on and so forth is through His leading and not ours. His ears are open to our prayers. He hears our prayers. I'm teaching, we'll start back Friday in our community group looking at these 11 uh, tests, if you will, from 1 John that speak of um, a true Christianity, you know. And one of those in there is that you have your prayers answered, that God answers your prayers. We can know that we belong to Him because He answers our prayers. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying everything that I ask for, I get, okay? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when I approach Him and I realize that my righteousness is in Him, that I might not even... There's always a chance I shouldn't even be praying for what I'm praying for. So my first prayer is, God, you, you open up my heart. You show me my need. You say you know my needs better than I do. Thank God. You show me. And by the time He gets through changing my heart and my life, now I can ask and He will answer. And I'll tell you, He does answer each and every time. Sometimes that answer is okay. Sometimes it's already done. Sometimes it's maybe. Sometimes it's wait But I leave that place knowing that God has answered my prayer, that I hear, I have heard clearly from Him. And it all centers around what He has accomplished for us. Our righteousness in Him. He's open to our prayers. What a wonderful thing. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Before holy and righteous God, He hears the prayers of His people and He answers those prayers. How encouraging is that? We're never alone. I'm talking about effective action here. I'm talking about something happening, something changing, the hand of God moving because He's faithful and He will not disappoint. Verse 13 says, Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And I love, if I can find it, the the note in in, uh, MacArthur text here. He says, it is unusual for people to mistreat those who are zealous of good. Even a hostile world is slow to hurt people who are benefactors of society, who are kind and caring. But then I love what he has. He has a comment here and he says, but it does happen. (laughs) And we know that that happens. People aren't always appreciative. We used to say in, when I was teaching young police officers in basic mandate training, we'd just make it just as simple as we could because we knew there would be things to come in their life, experiences in work that would challenge them. There's, uh, you know, sin's going to find them, okay? And we'd tell them, hey, it's always right to do right. That's what we would tell them. So now the, 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 the problem is the foundation, just like conscious. Do you know what right is? Of course, there we were talking about from a professional sense, but I never taught them that and that alone. <laughs> we went to the real foundation. They hadn't run me off yet. But that's what we would teach them. We would. Do you know what you believe? Do you think lying is situational? Do you? Do you think it's determinant upon the, the circumstances, whether or not you can lie or not? It's amazing what people have to be taught. And by the way, in 
a true professional police department, there's no tolerance for lying. You lie, you're out. Find you another job. Your courtroom testimony is blown. Okay, they'll eventually get to it. If the case is big enough, they'll find the documentation where you've been counseled or suspended or whatever for telling a lie. Or from our department and from my former department at Cobb, you got fired. Okay. It's all about the foundation. So, he says, no, there's really nobody there to, to harm you. Okay. Even in the unbelieving world, just do right. And then verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So, it's a win-win situation, is it not? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, Christ the Lord, as holy. Now this speaks specifically about what we've said all along about keeping Christ first. And I love that, that Peter goes back and he adds this. In your hearts, your motivation, in your heart, deep down in your honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, everything you say, everything you do, Okay, your, your purest motivation is for Christ, first and foremost. First and foremost. Always for Christ. And then he adds that part of the verse that I guess we're all most familiar with. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know, what is he saying there? That's what should be on your mind day in and day out as a servant of Jesus Christ, as one who truly understands that their righteousness is found in the work of Christ and we can respond to any, any situation. What is it all about? It's about our life and our words being a testimony to who Christ is. He is the only hope for people who are lost without Him. Always always being prepared to make that defense. It's talking about apologetics. That's the root of the word there from anyone who asks. And then he goes on. Then he deals with the heart a little more. Even in presenting the gospel, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Now, I and I share with y'all sometimes, and y'all chuckle, but I've, you know, the church that I grew up in as a young boy, there's been many a time I was afraid I was going to get hit with a Bible. Okay? That, <laughs> that's kind of the way they were. They're real demonstrative, you know, real, a lot of movement going on, okay, in the pulpit and so forth. A lot of hollering, a lot of, a lot of shouting, a lot of finger pointing and all that kind of thing. You know, all that was going on. He says, with gentleness and respect. I picture Paul... 117th chapter of Acts at Mars Hill preaching. And he comes out and he just, he just demonstrates such wisdom. And you almost get the picture that as he walked out there in Athens and he looked around, he's down there looking at all those statues, you know. A lot of statues, you know. He says, uh, when he starts talking to them, he says, been going around looking at the statues. Let me paraphrase here. I'll be true to the word when I paraphrase. And he said, I, I saw a statue that said to the unknown God. And he says, that's the one I've come to talk to you about today. I just thought that was just, <laughs> just amazing when he does that. Because he's thinking about these people's need. 
And he doesn't start in on them, and he knows that they're there in a critical spirit. You know, what will this babbler say? That's what they'd said about him earlier as they were preparing to come out and listen to him. He's thinking about their need. How can he best reach these people? He doesn't start talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that. No, he starts talking about the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's meeting these people where they live. And then he goes on and he builds upon that. Is that our heart? Is that our desire? Is that what we think about? When we think about that person in our families, and I got them, people that that I work with, I have them there too. I know you do. They're just critical. They're critical about spiritual things. They're critical of you because they don't don't like what motivates you. They don't understand it, so they, they see it initially as a threat. They know it's something they can't manipulate. You don't play by the world's rules, right? So you're a threat right off. How do you deal with those folks? I'll tell you how you deal with them. You submit yourself to Christ. You have your desire to serve them, whatever the situation is. If you get an opportunity to meet them with grace, then you do that because that is a sure sign that God is at work in their life. He's using your ministry there before them. He's doing that. And you'll begin to see some change. You'll begin to see it. Well, you see the impact of the background verses here, I trust. Be prepared to make that defense. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And then here we have it in verse 16. Having a good conscience. Okay? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior. Once again, we're talking about the life again. We're talking about the life lived. Your good behavior in Christ. They, it says, and I'm adding that, may be put to shame. They may be put to shame. The power, the impact, if you will, of a life that is totally in the center of God's will. This is, a, this is what we strive for. And I'll be honest with you, when I, when I begin reading these verses, and, and as we always do, looking at my own life, I can see areas of temptation in my own life. Temptations to pull away from this. To get focused upon my own interest. And then as the verse 16 would have it, hey, my own conscience will eventually be affected if I depart from this. But if I stay true to it, even the slanderers, those who revile, okay, and who look at uh, my good behavior, my faithfulness to Christ, it says that example will put them to shame. What is that saying? That is God working through your life through your obedience to Him. Now when you see it that way, it kind of takes the pressure off uh, of you. It's not about you per se. It's about you. Specifically, it's about your obedience to Christ and Him using that. Well, it has to be pure, doesn't it? As we've said. It can't be tainted. Well... When we look at this and we look at our own efforts, sometimes it's overwhelming, isn't it? Sometimes it's like, I don't do this. Or, or I, can, I can look at example after example in my life where I've, I've fallen short of this. I've missed the mark. Well, that's a good spot to be in because that's when the Word of God 
begins to change our life when it truly comes to bear on our daily activities. We look at this verse. Christians should live in such a way, it says, that their moral consciousness should approve their actions. We know that. And he says plainly that we can have good behavior. Remember that word we looked at, agathos? It talks about something of benefit, something of value. We see it over and over again. And he speaks of slander, just simply evil speaking or verbal abuse perhaps from someone. I like what it says in the New American Standard. It says when they defame you as evildoers. Okay, not just speaking evil of you, but they defame you as evildoers. Okay. That word revile is talking about someone who's slandered or someone who's been spoken against. Could involve certain types of threats, certainly insults or some sort of mistreatment. See? To revile and to, to slander. He adds that our good and non-condemning conscience will cause our false accusers to feel the shame of their own conscience. That's actually an excerpt from MacArthur's notes. We talked about that. God will use our obedience. So it begs the question, well, what what about affliction? What about the difficulty that comes upon us even when we bear a good conscience, okay? Well, we read from Peter, he says, look, if you're persecuted because of that, that's it's okay. God will bless you. He'll see you through that. He'll get the honor and glory for that. So in one sense, we need to expect that. The Bible speaks of that. Christ talked about that. Paul talks about tribulation and difficulties. He adds that to this we were born. You know, the Lord himself says, you know, in this world you'll have tribulation. But remember, I've overcome the world. It'll be all right. Everything you need has been provided It's been provided. And then there's this quote that I'd found in my studies here from Thomas Watson. As we say, one of the old dead guys, listen. Thomas Watson writes about afflictions. He says, Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare for it. That is, they prepare us for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so afflictions prepare and make us ready for glory. The vessel is first seasoned before wine is poured into it. And he's making an analogy here. The vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, he adds. And then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial. They're not there for our hurt, but they're beneficial. Beneficial. To the saints. You know, I think we get half the battle fought and completed when we realize that difficult times are going to come. Challenges are going to come. Okay? You can be as right as rain on a doctrinal or scriptural issue. You can be in in your motives, your intent, your methods of ministry, whatever. You can be just as right and pure as you want and difficulties will come. In fact... The Scriptures assures us that they will come. How much strength, how much power in our own life, spiritual power, if you will, is reserved for a better use if we just simply accept that up front. 
And we acknowledge the fact, yes, it's going to happen. It's going to come. I can maintain a clear conscience. And as long as that's fine, then I'll be able to use what God has placed in my life to be further benefit to the kingdom of God. We can do that. So I see it as a great reserve of spiritual energy, if you will, to to accept that up front. And then to know that God has not left us, that He will provide for us during those times. In the interest of finishing, I'm going to move to 1 Peter 3.21 because he he kind of goes left here on an issue when he's talking about (laughs) Noah and the flood and baptism and so forth. But again, we see this last use of the word, the original Greek word that's um, translated conscience. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in looking at this verse, to me, it, it, it tends to hinge on this word appeal. Because when we see that word in English, the word appeal... We think in terms of going before something, requesting something or whatever. And actually, uh, that's, not, that's not the rendering here. It's more, he says, the idea of a pledge. It's agreeing with something from our part. It's looking at something as real and saying, I accept that. I agree to that. Okay, And in context here, he's talking about the new covenant. And if we went back and looked at the flood like he does there in just a couple of verses about how people were saved by water and so forth. And he says in like manner or as a type, if you will, this is the same thing that happens in Christ. In other words, the parallel is when you enter into Christ, it's, it's analogous to... to, to uh, moving into the ark. That's what he's talking about. And he's just making an example. So here he's talking about salvation. That's what he's talking about. And he adds, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. He's not talking about salvation through baptism. That's not what he's talking about. No. But he is saying, when he talks about having a good conscience, it's because of this word appeal. It's because you have elected to accept something. You've accepted the truth of the new covenant. And if you've done that, he says you can have a good conscience toward God. See, we're back to it again. Back to the same thing. Well, then he mentions the, the resurrection, which has to be believed. Believers must believe the resurrection. We know that from the New Testament. Anastasis means to stand up again or raise to life again. That's the original word that was used. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, those are the ones that Christ brings with Him. Belief in the resurrection. But here for sure, He's pointing to the new covenant or the better sacrifice as we read about in other Hebrew uh, passages. You know, we looked at verse at chapter 9, verse 9, and verse 14 in Hebrews last week. In verse 9, he's talking about the Old Testament way, the sacrifices and all being symbolic. You'll remember that. Okay? And then in 14, he says, How much more does this new covenant, uh, this completion of what God has done, how much more effective is it because it's been accomplished by God's own Son? He shed His precious blood for us. It's complete. So I keep going back to this. And I keep trying to, to tie this in because it's been a, it's been a, 
it's been somewhat of a hard concept for me to understand that all issues of conscience eventually go back to our standing, if you will, our faith, our faith, our understanding of who Christ is and what He's done for us. That makes it clear. That makes it, uh, it makes it where we can hear clearly regarding a particular situation. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm just struggling to, to find the words. We have to start there. That's what helps us to begin cleansing our minds so that we can hear God clearly over an issue, if that helps you. Well, Christ is all-sufficient. His all-sufficient substitutionary sacrificial death, His payment for our sin, makes it possible for us to have a good conscience. A good conscience. And then and only then do we begin to focus upon, well, how has my conscience been founded? How has it been formulated? And then I added at the bottom, in every instance where our conscience is at issue, the standard for a good and pure conscience is always made possible by the work of Christ and measured against the word and will of God in any matter or situation. Simple as that. Well, that exhausts the 30 verses. And that I thought well, maybe just with a moment with the time left, I'm just going to give you a, a quick review. It's uh, the one that you can take from the book if you have the book. But he talks just for a moment about the fact that the conscience, as we've seen through all these verses, that it, can, it has positive aspects, it has negative aspects. We learn that the conscience can be good. It can be. It can be blameless. It can be clear. It can be clean. It can be pure. It has this potential. This is what we want. He added, uh, when we're talking about the positive aspects, the conscience can be cleansed. It can be good. It can be cleansed. That is, he says, it can be cleared. It can be perfected. It can be purified. It can be washed. It can be purged. It can be sprinkled clean. These are all words that we've seen taken right out of the text, the, the text with an S that we've been studying. And then, of course, there's always the negative side. Okay, or that which the conscience points out. And I love the way the authors put this in the book because they start at kind of a, a lower end and they build a, a crescendo. In other words, these negative issues be, become greater and greater and greater because he starts with the fact that the conscience can be weak. We talked about that a good deal, a good deal rather in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7, 10, and 12. We talked about what a weak conscience was. Actually, where is a weak conscience strong? You remember that? Where is it strongest? Where is a weak conscience actually strong? When it comes to legalism. <laughs> yeah. It kind of works against itself. Oh, I can't do that. Ooh. You know, the Bible may not even say anything about that, but oh, no, can't do that. Okay. Strong conscience, but a weak conscience, actually. And then secondly, you got weak, then you got wounded. Again, from 1 Corinthians 8.12, he talked about the conscience being subjected to being wounded and our responsibilities uh, not to wound someone's conscience. Then, as it gets worse, he talks about a conscience, you know, it can be weak, it can be wounded, but it can also be defiled. 1 Corinthians 8.7 and, and Titus 1.15, a defiled conscience. And then the conscience can be encouraged or emboldened to sin. Yeah, 
Again, moving in our progression. So five, he talks about an evil or guilty conscience from Hebrews 10.22. It can be evil. It can be guilty. I just, you know, I had to review some videos this week in preparing for some officer-involved training, uh, use of force training and so forth. And I got a counterpart over at Merida PD. He has just a treasure trove of videos that he's taken from news and, and site videos from security cameras and officers' cars. You know, we got cameras in there and cameras on the officers now. And you can imagine what's produced from those from the video from those things. And I watched this video with these gang guys. They ran this guy down. They chased him into a, a, a lobby at like a hotel or something. They shot him through the, through the chest first. It's a horrible scene. He's down on the ground. He's trying to get his gun out, and it hangs on his pants. So the other two guys that shot him come in. They're trying to wrestle the gun away from him. And while he's wrestling to try to keep his gun in his hand, there's another guy with a pistol trying to shoot him in the head. He's doing this boom, boom, boom. And he finally shoots the guy across the head, and he just grazes him. And then he gets the pistol away, and then he walks over and just empties the weapon in this young guy. And he just And you say, how... How could someone do that? Okay, this was a young teenage kid with no concept at all about what he was doing. Uh, it's, it's terrifying. And that video is years old. Years old. But I hate seeing it. And I'm reminded from time to time about the depths of evil that's within the human heart. And if the conscience is not working... If it's not working, if it has no foundation, you see this kind of thing that I just described. And even in a good sense, even when we're trying, okay, the desire to do and to say the right thing and to think rightly should drive us to our knees because we cannot do that apart from the will of God. We certainly cannot do that without a constant understanding about what we have comes from Christ and Christ alone. And then lastly, that's not the worst one. The last one, as you might remember from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.2, is a seared conscience. Maybe I should have saved my example for this one. A seared conscience. And he says, seared is with a hot iron. Just destroyed. Carterized. Remember the word. It's the word, same word we get the word carterized from. This is the potential. This is what the conscience can reflect. We know the conscience. It bears witness in our life. It, it serves to confirm. Okay, It can approve. Okay, It can tell us that we're wrong. The conscience can judge or try to determine another person's freedom. We looked at that from 1 Corinthians. And the conscience can lead a person to act in a certain way, and certainly it should. It's your conscience. It's our awareness. This is the definition. You know, he waits to the end of the second chapter to actually give the definition. I may have given it up to you earlier. The conscience is your consciousness. He uses the word to define it, which I was taught you didn't do that, but he does. Or what you believe is right or wrong, just as simple as that. And we pray that our conscience will be formulated by the Word of God, by the power of God's Spirit within us, by a desire to please Him, not to have our way, not to prove our way right, but to hear the voice of God on a particular matter.